But we start today with an exclusive global news interview, and you don't want to miss this. The Charlene Amurl, okay, she is a BC mom. She is from Souk on Vancouver Island. She is in hospital in Victoria, suffering from a really, really bad case of COVID-19. She is not vaccinated. She didn't think she needed to take the vaccine. She is speaking out from her hospital bed, warning others, do not make the same mistake that I made. Now, this is a dramatic, powerful interview you're about to hear. We're going to play it at some length here for you. And then I'll be speaking to Dr. Kevin McLeod from Lionsgate Hospital. But have a listen to this here now. This is Charlene Armel from, Armel from Souk on Vancouver Island speaking from her hospital bed to Global News. Have a listen. My name is Charlene. I live in Souk, B.C. And I got COVID. My daughter got it first, she's 13, and I looked after her as she would as a mom, and uh, a few days later, I started getting really sick. I came down with a really bad headache behind my eyes, and cold, and shivers. And it just started to progress from there. I obviously was very nervous and scared inside. And I tried to remain positive that it was just a cold. I uh, became so weak and so uh, just drained, no energy, so fast. All I could do was sleep like 20 hours a day and try to fill up on all the things I thought I was to do, like all the vitamins and stay hydrated and all that stuff, but it didn't work. I thought I could fight it. it didn't work. I chose, unfortunately, not to be vaccinated because I thought I could beat the odds, but also because I was terrified from the information that I've read online about potential side effects that seem to have affected some people. And it scared the living lights out of me. So, Unfortunately, I chose not to get vaccinated. After eight days of suffering, drove myself to a clinic for testing, and where I finally got uh, diagnosed as being positive for COVID. And the next day, I drove my children back and my daughter was confirmed to have COVID. My son, who is 10, is negative. And that was the best 10th birthday present he could have ever gotten. So 
I visited my family doctor via virtual video appointment and I did what I was told. I isolated from my kids and drank lots of fluids and you know stayed in bed rested but I kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. I called the paramedics two times, uh, two days apart, and they both said you seem to be managing on your own, and that the hospitals are so full, just tough it out if you can. So I did, and also because I didn't have anyone to look after my children. So I toughed it out at home. On a Monday morning, when I woke up, I could barely breathe. And I could barely walk, and I knew I was in real danger. So I called 911 again. And the doctor, the paramedics came. They took one look at me, and they, they knew I needed help right away. They found me a bed at Royal Jubilee Hospital, thank God. And I was lucky enough to get, to get treatment. I had some, I missed, was lucky enough to not need to be intubated, but it was close. And it's gonna be some time before I'm better, but I'm still alive, and I'll get to hold my kids again. I can't wait for that. I am sharing my story because the fear is real for so many people. The fear to get vaccinated, the fear not to get vaccinated, and everything in between, all the all the worries that we go through. Mine was very personal. I had leukemia when I was six. I didn't know if I would have a reaction to the vaccine. But in hindsight, I wish I would have gotten a vaccine because I might not be here right now suffering with COVID. So I don't know if me sharing my story with anybody will help anybody, but I hope it does.
And I hope that you never have to go through COVID because it is evil and there's no toughing it out. Trust me, I tried. Anyways, love and health and safety to everybody out there. And please be kind to all your healthcare workers. They're doing an incredible job. So you just heard that interview there with Charlene Merle. She is a Vancouver Island mom of two suffering from COVID in hospital, uh, warning people to get the virus or get the uh, get the vaccine so you don't get the virus. Dr. Kevin McLeod is my guest. He works in the COVID ward at Lionsgate Hospital. Dr. McLeod, thanks for coming on again. Mike, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a powerful interview when you hear it, and it, it's good on you guys to play the whole thing. Yeah, I thought it was worth playing the, the, uh, that interview at length. What, did you, what went through your mind as you listened to that? Um, sadly, it's not a unique story, right? I mean, there, there's so many of these stories that are behind, you know, closed doors at the hospital that for privacy reasons, we, we can't put out there. But that, that's a story that's repeated many times. And, and, you know, she was lucky, even though she's got an incredibly long road ahead of her, you can just hear it in her voice. Like if she's been in a hospital bed for days, She's going to be there for weeks, recovering, regaining strength and other things. But I can tell you there's similar stories with moms and dads who who weren't as lucky and got intubated, right? Or, or some who've died. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a big deal. The other thing that really struck me is, you know, she said she looked online and she sort of saw this information about why this vaccine is so dangerous and bad. And there's so much false information out there. You know, even even just yesterday, a study in a fairly reputable journal had to be redacted, retracted or, or pulled because they'd done their numbers wrong. And they said, oh, well, you know, the risk of myocarditis post-vaccine is about one in a thousand. It's not. It's one in 10,000. So there's there's so much misinformation out there and people are making bad decisions based on that and then ending up like this poor woman. Yeah, and you could hear her oxygen uh, in the background during that interview. So she is receiving oxygen, not intubated, as you heard her say, although she said it was she was close to being intubated, receiving oxygen. When someone is intubated, when they reach that stage, what are the what are the chances of, uh, of beating it? Well, your, your chance of dying is much higher if, if you've been intubated. I mean, the other thing you can hear in her voice, and so people really understand what COVID does, it, it causes all this inflammation, right? So then you get little yeah. blood clots, and you, you basically knock off parts of your lung filled with fluid you can't breathe. It's not yeah. like that's suddenly better in five days. So I've had patients that I've seen in the last week even who, who had COVID a year ago, and, and these were you know good examples, mums who were out going for 10K runs and other things. They can't get up a flight of stairs in their home now without being short of breath. So even though you may beat it, there's this very long-term impact when there's such a very low risk of side effect of the vaccine. Honestly, it's, it's nuts what some people are, are deciding to put themselves at risk. And yeah, your risk of dying of COVID if you're young is pretty low, but your risk of having some crappy outcome or some permanent damage to your lung or something else, it's not zero. It's, yeah. it's real. Yeah, you could hear her kind of struggling for breath during that interview for sure. And as she described what she went through there of the of the uh, of feeling worse and sicker as the days went on and on, and finally at one point she could barely walk. She felt like she could barely barely breathe, and that came on over a period of many days. Is Absolutely. that is that typical? Absolutely. 
It's typical. I mean, it comes on a little bit more quickly with Delta, but you're right. It, it does grumble along. This is not the common cold. You know, even 10 days out, some people are are landing in hospital really, really sick. So, yeah. and, and, and you look at the stats released yesterday, 95, 95, 95% of, of patients in our ICU in BC are unvaccinated. That's not, you know, that's not people who receive partial vaccination or other things. They're, they're unvaccinated. Yeah. Um, and, and that number actually is probably a little bit wrong because some people get classified as being doubly vaccinated when they didn't necessarily receive you know, one of the Health Canada approved vaccines. I mean, we do have people who got vaccinated in other countries where, you know, maybe they've approved inferior vaccines or things that just don't have the same efficacy. So if you've got one of the mRNA vaccines, your chance of landing in ICU in BC right now is as close to zero as you can get. Right. We've just got a minute left here, Dr. McLeod. What's the bottom line message you want to get out to people today? Well, don't, don't listen, listen to this lady's story and, yeah, and yeah. know that there are many other stories like that that I, I wish and I, I can't obviously I wish I could get people out there to talk about it or I could talk about it because I think it would actually send a very powerful message sometimes our our leaders are out there giving numbers we've been doing that for 18 months people need to actually hear the real world stories to make better decisions yeah and we certainly heard one there this morning Dr. McLeod thanks for coming on once again today appreciate it Mike anytime Okay, thank you. My next guest is interim BC Liberal leader Shirley Bond. Lots to talk about with her this morning, including the surging COVID case count in northern British Columbia. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Always a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. I I thought it was very significant that you and other northern MLAs from the Liberal Party sat down for a conference call with Health Minister Adrian Dix this week to talk about the challenges in the healthcare system, especially in the north where there's a lot of full ICU beds and a lot of COVID up there. Uh, do you think that, I, I, a lot, you got a lot of praise, I think rightly so, for the two parties coming together here and putting politics aside when we've got a public health emergency. Can you, can you talk about the importance of that? Well, sure. Uh, and thanks again, Mike. Uh, you know, obviously, um, all of us want to get back to a more normal lifestyle. And we know and have said from the beginning, our, we have, we've worked with the government on, on a number of issues related to COVID in a, in a positive and constructive way. But vaccination is a pretty key part of achieving our shared goal of getting back to a more normal uh, lifestyle in British Columbia. So we have a system that is under enormous stress. And, and my biggest and deepest concern is for those healthcare professionals who for 18 months have been doing absolutely everything they can to keep communities and people safe. So, you know, this is, uh, this is not a moment for, for partisan debate. Um, no. Having said that, Mike, and you know me well enough to know that we're still going to ask hard questions about things like implementation, consequences of policy decisions, but uh, it is important that we work together to remind British Columbians that if you can be vaccinated, you should be. Yeah, especially in the region that you represent in the legislature, Prince George, and we've seen other parts of northern British Columbia where there's a a lower than average vaccination rate and a a lot of COVID. Let me play a clip here for you from your Liberal Party colleague, Mike Bernier, who's the MLA in Peace River South. And he was on with Simi Sarah uh, earlier this week, and she asked him why the rates are so low in that region for vaccinations. And here's what he had to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. If I had a dollar for every person that said, I read on Facebook that, uh, I wouldn't have to do this job anymore. <laughs> the, you know, it's been very, it's been very challenging. 
Uh, we are finally over the 50% mark uh, in uh, the northeast part of the province for people being vaccinated. Uh, but there is a lot of uh, a lot of angst, a lot of confusion, a lot of skepticism still with uh, with people in my region. And you know, we've had a lot of efforts trying to uh, get it across the finish line, get the rates up. But uh, still, a lot of people uh, just really don't have trust in government in my area. Okay, I thought that was interesting what he said at the end there, that maybe some of this is flowing from people's distrust of government. Do you think that's the case? Well, I certainly think that, you know, misinformation and, and uh, you know, not not... not fully understanding uh, the the need for vaccination and what a difference it makes um, is part of that. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why when we sit down together and strategize about what it's going to take to move those numbers up, I think that helps uh, people uh, regain some of that faith that that politicians can actually, when it really matters, um, they can work together across party lines. And, you know, this isn't the only example of it. It's certainly been one of the highest profile ones but you know we try to find ways to restore people's faith in in uh, in in the political world by by working together on issues that shouldn't be partisan you know we think yeah. about reconciliation we think about the opioid crisis we have offered to work constructively with government so have the greens uh, in order to to deal with those those issues as well so I think it is about regaining trust it's about letting people know that we'll set aside the partisan issues we're still going to ask tough questions but right. we'll set aside the, the bigger partisan approach for issues that are, are this challenging for our province. Speaking to Shirley Bond, interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, leader of the opposition in the legislature, when you take a look at the, those low vaccination rates in Prince George, elsewhere in the north, do you think government and health authorities can be doing something more to get more people confident to take the vaccine and increase those vaccination rates? Well, first of all, you know, we saw recently the government add additional resources to Northern Health, you know, over $6 million. And over the longer term, that that certainly is necessary and probably more is necessary. The challenge, Mike, right now is that, you know, we have uh, ICU uh, uh, units that are, are full. Uh, we went yeah. to the minister. We talked to him about the fact that we needed to, to find a way to divert some of those cases. And believe me, no one asks for that to happen easily because it's very difficult for families. Um, but we did see a response there. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that we really need to focus on, and we heard this in a call with uh, mayors from across the region, they want and we want specific data. One of the, the challenges is people are tired of hearing the message, and so they tend to tune it out. So we need to find ways to refresh and think about how do we make the point. One of the ways we do that is by having community-specific data. And uh, again, we, we think there's a gap there, and I'm going to continue to press on behalf of mayors, other elected officials, uh, and our, our party that are saying we need the data to be specific so that it helps us tell the story. What, what kind of data are you looking for? Well, you think about, for example, communities like Vanderhoof, like Smithers, like, like, like small communities. People need to know that there are COVID cases in their communities. And, and I heard from mayors last, you know, this week that said, you know, we're, we're really, we're very concerned for our communities. But having that specific 
detail, community by community, what the circumstances are like, having the, the, uh, the detailed information helps them personalize the message to people who live in their communities. And I think that's a reasonable request, and certainly the minister seemed open. Um, but it, but it's, it, again, it's things like school notification. Parents deserve to know. Um, I think we're at that place where we continue to face the, the pandemic that we're beyond that, that broad data. We need people to fully understand what's going on. We need to trust them with that information because it helps shape decisions. Right. We've seen anti-vaccination protests outside of hospitals. We've seen protests outside of schools. We even saw protesters go into a school triggering a security lockdown in one interior school district. If you take a look at what they're doing in the province of Quebec, where they've had similar uh, similar protests, Quebec just passed a law making protesting illegal outside of schools and hospitals, bringing in that no-go zone law. In British Columbia, that has not been ruled out. Here's Premier John Horgan on that, and then I'll get your thoughts on this. So here's Horgan on the potential for a no-go zone, go zone law or bubble law to protect hospitals and schools. The Attorney General and the Solicitor General on legislation or perhaps policy changes to existing uh, regulations to protect uh, workers and those that are accessing those services. Okay, do you think we need to do that in B.C.? Well, you know, I certainly spoke out quickly and and, uh, very aggressively. You know, having adults be in schools uh, where people with staff and students need to be safe is completely unacceptable. I also believe in the fundamental right uh, to protest. So uh, we'll certainly take a look at any language that's provided. We do want to make sure that, you know, patients can get to their appointments. We heard tragic stories about people who were unable to to be with a loved one uh, in the end hours of their lives because of protests. And certainly staff and students should be safe in schools. So it it is something that, uh, you know, I I would want to look at the language, look at how focused it is. Uh, We want to protect, of course, we want to protect workers and staff and students. Um, And we also need to look at, at, at what that looks like and how focused is the language. So uh, we certainly will consider that uh, when the uh, government brings it forward. But frankly, uh, you know, those first protests happened weeks ago. And again, we need to see those kinds of things happen quickly in British Columbia. So um, we'll, we'll look forward to the language that the government's preparing. Let me ask you about one more issue that we covered on the show here yesterday. And I know it was an important one for the liberal opposition. And that was the news that uh, the government had cut funding for naloxone kits for police departments in British Columbia, which is just stunning to ponder. Uh, here is Doug Spencer on yesterday's show. He's a retired Vancouver police officer on the importance of police having this tool. I can tell you, Mike, I saved a life at down at Commercial Drive there. I had somebody run up to me and say, hey, there's a guy overdosing. And I ran into the washroom in the McDonald's and the guy was no pulse, no breath. And I gave him the naloxone. Uh, my partner was doing CPR, and the guy sat up. Wow! That's it. it absolutely scared the crap out of me. To be honest, I, I couldn't believe it. it was like some movie, The Living Dead or something, right? And uh, I ended up talking with the guy at the hospital after getting the information and. It turned out he had overdosed 45 times. Okay, I find it kind of shocking that the government would even consider cutting the funding for naloxone for police officers. Uh, the Liberals were speaking out on this this week. Yesterday, Premier John Horgan said, back down on this, and they're, they're trying to find the funding to keep buying these kits for police officers. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, first of all, John Horgan is the Premier of British Columbia. They're trying to find the funding. Yesterday, the Premier could have and should have said, the funding will continue and, uh, and, and we shouldn't have done this in the first place. You know, there, there are times when looking back and saying, you know what, we didn't do that as well as we should have is, is pretty appropriate. He's the Premier. He could have yesterday and should have said, it was a mistake, we're going to continue funding naloxone kits. It happened months ago on this Premier's watch. It was their decision to make that cut. They yeah. can reverse that. He should do that. He should have done it yesterday. Thank you for coming on today. There's a huge developments here in the Meng Wanzhou case unfolding today. The Huawei chief financial officer just left her Vancouver mansion a short time ago on her way to appear by a virtual court appearance in a Brooklyn, New York court virtually where she is expected to plead guilty as part of a plea deal that would allow her to return to China. She's been under house arrest in Vancouver for nearly three years. Multiple news sources uh, reporting now that that's expected to happen here shortly. Plea deal here for Meng Wanzhou. Let's check in with Margaret McQuaig Johnston now from the University of Ottawa, one of Canada's top experts on Canada-China relations. Thank you for coming on once again. Good to talk to you, Mike. Does this surprise you in any way after nearly three years? We get a, we, it appears we're going to get a plea bargain deal here. Well, um, it, it doesn't in the sense that for the last uh, year and a half, there have been um, discussions as to whether this might happen. Yeah. Um, it's typical uh, in a deferred prosecution like this, where um, there's an official of the corporation that um, is accused. And uh, the deferred prosecution means that it's the company that pays a fine and um, and it, normally the official uh, de- declares some kind of wrongdoing. There has been a report uh, just in the last few minutes from Bloomberg that she might not do that. She might not uh, plead guilty after all. And I think it's going to be very important to see what the terms of this agreement are, because uh, the last thing we would want is for the U.S. to simply wave away the um the um charges and say say oh well you know we're just going to forget about that because what it what it would do is give the message to beijing that any any time they want uh to get out of a, a tight situation like this they just have to kidnap some citizens yeah. and we know that biden and blinken the secretary of state have said that they are treating the Michaels as if they were the, their own citizens. So they are a top priority for them. Let's talk about the two Michaels, Margaret, which is a top of mind for many Canadians, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, uh, who have been detained in a Chinese jails for years in what most experts say was clear retaliation against Canada for the arrest of Meng Wanzhou. If this deal, some sort of plea deal goes through here, we're going to find out soon what's going on. If it goes through and Meng Wanzhou is freed, she goes back to China, do the two Michaels come home to Canada? Well, we would all like to hope so and that they come uh, within days. Um, But in the last uh, year or so, China has repeatedly said that their case is not related to Meng's and uh, and that um, they are guilty of serious national security charges. Uh, and remember, Michael Spavor has been found guilty and given a sentence of 11 years 
Um, and there was some mention of deportation in that as well. Michael Kovrig has not been found guilty yet. Um, so that's a whole step that would have to um, happen, uh, guilt or not. It's 99.96% of the time the people are found guilty in China. Uh, so that's likely what would happen to him. And then uh, be given some kind of sentence but also, again, like Michael Spavor, with mention of deportation. Um, so that's, that's really, we hope that they move very quickly to deportation. Yeah, there's been like a game of international hostage diplomacy going on with these two Canadians, and it's dragged on for so many years. If it is resolved today, which appears it might be, would it surprise you that it's gone on this long, like nearly three years and then suddenly they're able to get some sort of deal to make it all go away? Like, couldn't they have done this a long time ago? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think certainly uh, the Biden administration has looked at this very seriously as one avenue. And, um, and you know, Trump uh, basically dismissed the, the suggestion. Um, and so, you know, it has been under active uh, consideration with the new Biden administration. But again, as I say, you, you can't just wave it away. Um, this has to be done fully in accordance with the way the charges were brought and the law in both the U.S. and Canada. We can't just kind of turn our, our eyes away from the law and say, well, we won't pay attention to that. We'll just let her go um, to get our guys back. You have to do things properly. And um, and so we do hope they come back. You know, there was a, a Canadian um, who was uh, similarly detained, Kevin Garrett. Yes. Uh, when, when there was a similar um, uh, extradition agreement back in 2014 um, of a Subin, a Chinese national, and um, and once Subin had had of his own accord gone to the states. Uh, Kevin Garrett was sent home within right. 36 hours of right. his uh, being found guilty. He's been a guest here on the show, and I, I think most Canadians would hope that the, the same outcome would now happen for the two Michaels. Uh, Margaret, we'll see how it unfolds today. Thanks for coming on. Good to talk to you. Here we go now with paid sick days in British Columbia. The B.C. government has now started its public consultation process on here, asking the public for feedback on the province's new and looming permanent paid sick day program. How many paid sick days should workers receive a year? Should they get three paid sick days, five paid sick days? maybe even 10 paid sick days per year. That's one of the questions on the government survey. Lots of outstanding questions about how this is going to work, though. Who's going to pay for this? How about part-time workers? Would they be covered, too? Lots of questions about this. Let's discuss it now. What a great panel we have for you. Kim Novak on the line. Kim is the president of UFCW 1518's uh, labor, labor Union. And, Kim, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me on your show. You bet. Thank you for being here. Also on the line is Howard Levitt. Howard is a senior partner at LSCS Law. That's an employment and labor law firm. Howard, thank you for doing this. Well, thank you, but it is now Levitt Shake. We now Levitt are Shake. out of initials and into real names. Okay, thank you for that. Kim Novak, let me go to you first. Kim, give me your take. I know you're a big supporter on paid sick days here in BC. Give me your case for that. 
Yeah, I mean, over the last 18 months, we've really seen the inequities that this pandemic has highlighted for us. And one of those is access to paid sick time. And I think we have done ourselves a disservice by really highlighting um, and supporting people always coming to work, regardless of whether you're sick or not. Make sure you come into work. We'll reward you for coming into work. Don't let us down. And unfortunately, what that's done in this pandemic has, on top of also encouraging people to come into work, they don't have access to pay time, they are coming to work sick, and it is infecting other places and other people in those workplaces. And what we've seen is business is actually shutting down as a result of that. And I'll go back to United Poultry, which was a, a poultry plant earlier in the pandemic that was shut down as a result of 28 positive COVID cases. So not only is it a health and safety issue for the workers who are coming to work sick because they have to choose between coming to work or staying home without pay, but it's also impacting business because they're not able to operate, they're not able to make the money that they want to be making, and it has a long-term impact on our economy as well. So by bringing in access to paid sick days, that's going to prevent people from going to work sick, but it's also going to help business be successful as well. Okay, Howard Levitt, paid sick days, your thoughts? Well, it's simply nonsense to say it somehow it helps business. That's just a logical disconnect. Look, it's great to be on the side of the angels. It's great to be able to say, let's have paid sick days. Let's give everybody a $10 an hour salary increase. Let's increase the minimum wage to an unaffordable amount. But the reality is businesses are suffering, and they simply can't afford this additional burden that ultimately will redound to everyone's dissatisfaction. Look, I understand there's an argument we don't want people to go to work sick, and they shouldn't go to work sick. And if they do go to work sick, then they should be, disciplined or even discharged if they're going to potentially infect other people. But the problem is paid sick days, and we know this from the union world, which Ms. Novak is from, is always abused. I've had many clients, and they give, say, 10 days paid sick days, and everybody takes 10 days, sick or not. They claim they're sick, but they just use them as floaters. And that's the reality here. It'll just be another benefit. It'll hurt a lot of the benefits that employers can't afford anymore. Okay, Kim so, Novak. Kim, what do you say to that? I haven't had the same experience. We have a lot of collective agreements that have paid sick days, and what we see is workers taking sick days when they're sick, and that is a health and safety issue. And so I don't see business suffering in the same way when they have workers coming to work um, healthy. They're doing well. In fact, we've seen businesses making exorbitant profits through this pandemic on the backs of the frontline workers who have been doing that work. But when business is hurting is when people come to work sick and as a result mm. shut down and therefore they're losing profits. But I think another thing we have to recognize right now is there are massive worker shortages. And one of the things that employers are trying to do is find ways to have work environments that are more attractive to bring people in. Higher wages is one part, but I saw a story in the National Post today that says that's not working. So another thing workers are looking for is the ability to be able to have paid time if they are sick and not being forced okay. into a workplace that does not value that. Okay, Howard Levitt, what do you say to that? Well, lots of workplaces actually do have a certain number of paid workplaces if they can afford it. And if it's in the company's interest to make themselves more attractive workplaces and if, and if paid sick days is part of the mechanism and the recipe for that, then they'll do that. But I don't know what experience Ms. Novak is talking about, but I can tell you that uniformly, if you give X days paid sick days, 95% of the time, everybody will take exactly X days paid sick days. If they're sick longer than that, they'll come to work sick. If they're sick less than that, they'll still take those days off. So it's a burden on the employer that doesn't actually reflect the amount of time the people are sick. Howard, 
What yeah. would would you say that, especially at this time and and the state of our economy, as we continue to weather through this COVID nineteen pandemic and hopefully emerge from it on the other side, uh, it's been difficult time for a lot of businesses. If you bring in a system like this, is it just another sort of input cost on business, another burden on business uh, at a well, at a precarious time? Your thoughts. That's precisely what I'm saying. That's exactly what it is. And if it's in a company's interest for its own reasons, in other words, to attract people to have paid sick days, like my business does to a certain number of days, that's what we'll do. If it isn't, yeah. if they can't afford it, then they won't. Kim Novak. Well, I'm happy to hear Mr. Levitt does provide sick days. I think that's a, a really good thing to hear. And additionally to that, you know, I'll, I'll just speak to the fact that BC's now had these three days in effect uh, for a few months, and it's being underutilized. So every worker in BC now has access to these paid sick days, and yet, based on projections that the government had made on that, it's being underutilized. I think that says two things. One, we still have to deal with this culture of people going to work sick. And two, um, and, and that's because you don't want to let your employer down. And two, people are using it when they're sick. They're not okay. wanting to abuse it. Okay, that's, but, a, that's an interesting point you just raised, because right now in BC, the government brought in three paid sick days per year, and that was... It was temporary, though, right, for COVID. Like, if you're sick with COVID, you get three days off a year paid, right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. And, you're, and you're saying that a lot of employees, they have the evidence is they have not abused that program? That yeah, we have not. Exactly. We have not yeah. seen a high uptake of that. And so, you know, then the question begs, well, why, why ask for 10 sick days then? Because for the people who do need it, to Mr. Lovett's point, if you only have three days, you'll use those days, and then you'll come back to work sick. But by having 10 for those who are actually sick, who are using those days, it helps to protect those businesses. And, you know, it shouldn't be a choice on whether a business decides to have a health and safety plan to protect workers. It should be a part of operating. Okay. This is an investment in workers by providing paid sick days, not an expense and a cost to those businesses. Howard Levitt, your thoughts? It is a cost and expense of business. It's, it's, it's obviously so. 10 paid sick days is 4% increase in and of itself. And worse than that, it's days that you don't anticipate in advance and floaters or days when the employer doesn't expect someone to be in and can't plan for to bring in a replacement are more onerous than just a regular vacation day. So that's the problem we have, that employees will take the time. I can't speak to what's happened during COVID. Maybe they're, everybody who's had COVID has taken the three days and those who haven't had the government's projections about how many were simply wrong. We don't know about that. But what I do know is my own experience, which is every client I have with a paid sick day policy, everyone takes the maximum virtually every time. And what if these, they're sick for longer than that? That doesn't, that doesn't really assist having 10 right. for everybody. That just encourages everybody to take 10 days off a year. Let's go to your calls here. Randy on the line in Surrey. Hi. Hi, um, that's Randy. Hey, listen, yeah. uh, first time caller, long time listener. Um, cool. just, I'm, I'm a business owner, uh, it's just a service, you know, requirement for transportation. We had an outbreak with, uh, COVID. Um, I don't believe in CERB. I mean, people that needed to take it. However, I did not, uh, diminish their salary or their hourly wages at all because I could afford it. However, there's other people out there that cannot, and nobody should dictate that they should have to do it. Now, when he says sick days, sick days could also be a, a you know, strained ankle or I don't feel well or, you know, something happened at home and my wrist hurts. I don't want to come to work. People take advantage of that. Okay, Kim, no, Kim, what do you, Kim, what do you say to him? 
Well, I think it's great that you were able to do that for your employees and that you chose to do that and ensure that they had that security um, when they were sick to be able to have that time off with pay. And I'm sure that makes them very loyal to you as their employer, that they know that they're going to be cared for in a, in a safe work environment. And I think that one of the things that COVID's highlighted for us is that, yes, there's a pandemic. People have gone to sick. And as a result, people have died by going to work and infecting others with themselves and have ended up either in ICU or in, in the worst case death. And I think what it really needs to be is moving away from sick leave benefit and sick leave right. So that regardless of the reason that you're off sick, you can yeah. get healthy and then come back to work and not make others sick. I'm sure there's a okay. lot of listeners today, not just business owners, but people who are working who may or may not have sick leave. But imagine if you did, you're more inclined to be able to stay home to get healthy before you're go- forcing yourself to go to work. So okay, but but Howard Lovett, the, the caller, said that his company was able to keep paying people and they're off sick, but not every company, he says, I guess her employer could do that. Do you think that paid sick days could put some businesses out of business? There's no question that some businesses are already marginal. And if you suddenly force 10 paid, unpredictable sick days on every employer, which you know many employees who aren't sick will take, or they'll have a sprained ankle, or they'll have a slight sniffle, or they'll not feel off, or they'll feel stressed that day, and, they won't, and they'll say, well, that's a, I'll call that a sick day. And those are the honest ones. Then there's a dishonest one, so we'll just say, I've got 10 days, I'll take them. It will put many employers over. And okay, let's prevent their ability to hire other employees that they need because they won't have the resources to do that. Okay, back to the phone line. Steve in Mission. Hi, Steve. Hi, guys. Great show. Um, you know, I, I have to say, I'm blown away here. Either you're, the guest from the union is either so delusional or just simply not telling the truth. I'm in a union, and people milk it. Um, why do you think so many people call in sick on Super Bowl the day after Super Bowl, man? I mean, come on. I mean, you know, if you hand, why do you think people wouldn't get jobs in the summer? Because if I'm getting 500 bucks a week from CERB, why am I going to make 15 bucks an hour? It is human nature that if you give something to somebody, they're going to take it. For you to say, well, it's very rare. I just, you're so delusional or dishonest. It's just Okay, Kim. Okay, Kim Novak, go ahead. Uh, I appreciate the question. I'm not delusional. I can assure you of that. And we do represent 26,000 members across BC, all of whom are frontline workers, whether they be home support workers, retail workers, working in restaurants. And what we did not see in this pandemic is a massive reduction in the people who are working. In fact, we've seen an increase in our membership during this time, which in itself says that people want to work. They're not rushing to go on to serve. And I'm disappointed in the cynicism of, of workers and the fact that they don't want to be making a living for their families and doing the very best that they can. What they wanted to be safe at work. And so at the end of the day, there are programs in place right now in British Columbia that actually have the government paying for these paid sick days. And so to the concern about small businesses that may go out of business as a result of sick days, first of all, if you're that marginal on going out of business, I think there's other issues that you probably need to look at. But then in addition to that, if you need a subsidy from government because you are a small business and you can show that you can't afford an additional benefit, that should be what the legislation is looking at. Okay. But for okay. those that can't afford it, they should be paying it. Okay, Howard Lovett, you know, the caller was pointing out, oh, you know, people will call in the, the day after Super Bowl, people will take a mental health day. I mean, we all know about that. Is there any evidence that for people who do have paid sick days, that it's it there's what it's widespread abuse of the system i mean is there any actual hard evidence that that happens well of course we have all kinds of data on super bowls the day after super bowl <laughs> just as the just as the last caller said yeah. and 
days on Fridays and Mondays around long weekends. There's ma- there's tremendous amount of surveys on that, lots of evidence. And okay. for my friend to suggest that people are not never going to abuse it, everybody's honest, it's just naive at best. Okay, let's or go to genuine. Let's go to Joe on the line in Whistler. Hi, Joe. Hi. Hi. Now, I worked in uh, the public education system as support staff for 25 years, and we actually were allotted 15 sick days a year. And I applaud Kim's um, uh, positive energy around uh, humanity, but I'm telling you, every day, oh, I'm going to take a, a me day tomorrow. Oh, my, uh, my husband's got a trade show in Vegas this weekend, so I won't be here Friday or Monday, and on and on and on. So I have to agree, if you put it out there, people will use and abuse it because it unfortunately seems to be human nature. Okay, Kim Novak. Well, good thing Super Bowl only happens once a year, and if we all know people are calling in sick because they want to watch the Super Bowl and they're posting photos on Facebook, I would assume Mr. Lovett and others would address those things. But let's get back to the fact we're in a global pandemic right now and people are dying because they're going to work sick. I think ultimately that's what we need to root this conversation in, is that we do, if everybody was using all of these sick days a year, then we would be in a much different situation for a lot of businesses. But Mr. Lovett offers it to his staff. He's already said that, that that's an important thing that he wants to provide to people. I'm sure he would address it if there was an abuse. But let's move away from this abuse and look at the fact that when children are going to school sick, because their parents are saying, i got to get you to go to school because I have to go to work or I will lose my job or I will be disciplined. Then we see outbreaks happening in schools. We see sickness rampant in schools. We see communities being impacted. So I recognize that there is this concern about a percentage of people who are going to abuse sick time. But let's look at what the consequences are by having people not have safe safe work environments. Because when we're looking at the people who work in janitorial services and other low-wage, frontline, precarious work, they are so scared to okay. lose their jobs, they're going to go to work sick. Thank, thank you again. We're just about out of time. Howard, you got 30 seconds to wrap up here. Sure. sure. I, have, I give five days in my office, not 10, not 15. In, in any event, here's the reality. There are some people who need to take time off to look because they're sick or their kid is sick and they, have to, and they have to be home with them. And the law protects that. The question is whether the employer should pay for it. And wow. there's no magic number in that respect. If employees come into work sick and they could pass on COVID potentially, that's cause for discharge, and that's the discipline in the workplace. But the reality is, the reality very quickly, the reality is that the people who are sick represent a small portion of the people who are going to be taking 10 days off if that was granted. Thank you to both of you for a really excellent discussion. We have lots more calls we simply can't get to, so we'll just have to have you both back because it was great. Thanks a lot. Kim Novak there from the USC. Thank you, Howard. Howard Levitt with uh, Levitt Shake Law Firm. Kim Novak is president of UFCW 1518 Union. Here we go now with BC's rent control system. Now, under the rent control law in British Columbia right now, landlords face a maximum limit on the annual rent increase they can impose on their tenants. The current maximum allowable rent hike for the coming year in B.C. is 1.5%. That's the maximum rent hike next year. But what if your landlord found a way to get around that law by jacking up your utilities bill instead? That is what tenants advocates fear after an interesting case has emerged in Vancouver. Let's discuss now with my guest, Wesley Harmer. Wesley is a Vancouver renter. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Wesley, thanks for coming on today. 
Thank you very much for having me. Okay, Wesley, let's talk about your place that you rent. You've lived in your suite, I understand, like for five years, right? Yes, that's correct. I moved in in uh, 2017. Okay, you've been happy living there, happy with your place? It's a it's a great apartment. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah, I know you're in the I know you're in the West End, it's a great neighborhood. Okay. Yeah. Wesley, tell me about how much do you pay in rent right now? Uh it's about twenty two hundred dollars a month. Okay. Now the interesting thing here is you got a new is it a like a rental agreement that your landlord sent sent to you that sort of split up your rent and uh, and made your utilities like a separate payable bill, right? Correct. So okay. every unit in the building, regardless of size, has always had $100 from the rent deducted for utilities. But now they're trying to force us into an agreement that says, like, for example, my utilities are $530 per month. Uh, and that that should be billed separately to a company that he owns. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's very interesting. So 530 a month for utility. Man, that's a lot. It's a lot of money for, for one person who's never really home. Yeah, you know, that yeah. is a lot. But as I understand it, did he, did he also, your landlord also lower your rent? So he's, you've got like a two line items on your on your bill now. You've got the rent and then you got the utilities. But the, the, rent, exactly. the, rent, the rent went down and the utilities went up. Is that what happened? Well, yeah, which is what was alarming about it. All of a sudden, my rent is only $1,640 a month, which seems, you know, surprising considering the utilities were only a hundred dollars for the last five years and now they're 530 so the numbers are all over the place they don't make they don't make any sense they don't add up okay so what is your concern here now is that right now there's rent control in bc you can't increase the rent by more than 1.5 percent but is there is there a loophole here where they could if they're going to charge you separately for the utilities your landlord could conceivably jack up the utilities bill higher than that right well, of course. And of course, you know, they, they suggest that they won't do that. But once you've signed this agreement, you open yourself up. It's contractual. Whatever they tell you, you owe, you owe. And they have said that there will be, you know, interest charge for unpaid bills per month. Uh, there's service charges, taxes, delivery t- uh, charges. You know, it adds up on their website to, to bottom line. How do I know, what guarantee do I have that the bills won't suddenly jump in price or that those of my neighbors, right? Right, and your case is a very interesting one, and tenants advocates have been looking closely at it and saying, well, hmm, is this some sort of a, like a loophole to get more money out of people? Is that your fear, your concern? That is definitely yeah. the, the fear and concern and, and consensus amongst my neighbors and other tenants yeah. and other buildings owned by him as well. Yeah, what are your neighbors telling you? A lot of folks in the last, uh, especially in the last couple of weeks, have have come to me and said, you know, we're also not interested in in signing up for this. A couple of them felt forced into it, uh, forced to sign it under duress and are now looking, you know, seeking avenues to to challenge that. Uh, And, you know, folks in other buildings have reached out and and expressed the same concerns. Uh, So, yeah. And is there a way you can dispute it? Like, can you go to the residential tenancy branch and appeal this or something? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, I, this has been a, a, a very quick crash course in tenants' rights and, and understanding all the, the different intricacies of how the tenant laws work. And I would certainly encourage people to think twice before you sign and ask as many questions as you need to ask. Yeah, like right now, under the rent control system we have here in B.C., there's an annual rent cap that's announced each year and it's it's tied to inflation so it's basically indexed to inflation the rent the maximum rent increase next year is 1.5 percent 
let's say you get into a situation where the utilities go up even much higher than that and so you mm-hmm. end up paying you end up paying more than 1.5%. Like what kind of impact could that have on you as as a renter if if you know that went up dramatically? Well, it, it can it would be an impact and and some of the folks that live in my building, you know, with young families or older folks who are on fixed incomes aren't prepared for that additional cost or surprise cost, nor should they be. And and keep in mind that in 2022, you know, my remaining $1,640 uh, in rent is still uh, allowed to be increased as well, 1.5%. So you're looking at a potential double increase, both in your rent and then this new utility cost, you know, for which when asked, well, can you break down that $530? What exactly is going to what in that $530? How much will the hydro cost? How much will everything cost? They don't, they haven't responded to that with an actual breakdown in the four times I've asked. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a very interesting case, and I know it's gotten a lot of t- attention here in the last the last day or so. Like, mm-hmm. uh, what are you hearing from other renters? There's a lot of people out there saying, like, "Whoa, wait a minute, is this some sort of loophole to get more money out of my pocket?" Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and, and a lot of a lot of folks are, are questioning. You know, I've never in in my forty years, I've never had a tenant or sorry, a landlord. Uh, discuss with me water and sewage, um, things like that, or, or trash removal. That's one of the things that a landlord accepts and builds into their business uh, plan, you know, their business model. How am I covering the basic costs of my building? Uh, this person's family built the building 110 years ago. They inherited it 30 years ago. It's a $30 million building. Uh, they're making generous amounts of money per year in rent. Uh, one has to question, are they not managing their money well, or are they fleecing their tenants in an effort to line their pockets, make them a little thicker? Okay. Are you planning to appeal this somehow at the tenancy branch? Absolutely. We've already started that process. Okay. Okay. Well, keep me informed. Uh, We'll continue to follow this case closely. I think it's an interesting one for sure. Wesley, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thank you very much for having me, and have a great day. So let's talk about the Meng Wanzhou case right now. The chief financial officer at Huawei at this hour is set to make a virtual court appearance in the United States. Multiple news organizations reporting that there appears to be a resolution in this case that could see Meng Wanzhou set free and returned to China. What does that mean for the two Michaels, uh, Canadians Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, who have been locked up in Chinese jails for the almost... You know, over two years now, uh, could they be returned as part of this? Let's check in with Richard Curland. He's an immigration lawyer and policy analyst who's been following this case closely. And I'm very pleased he could join us. Richard, thank you for coming on. A pleasure. What do we know about this case right now? I mean, we're seeing a lot of media headlines about what we expect to happen. What has happened? Do we know at this point? Yes, I'm watching facts on the ground. I'm actually here in the Vancouver court, uh, and I've uh, spoken with um, uh, many of the parties concerned. At this moment, uh, Ms. Meng is uh, physically present at her lawyer's office. They have some paperwork to sign. Uh, assuming the uh, New York uh, uh, case is disposed of um, within the next hour or so, uh, we move to Vancouver in the afternoon, where their court hearing has been suddenly scheduled. Uh, the parties will appear. The likely outcome is that uh, considering the deferred prosecution agreement, that uh, ought to have been reached uh, any moment now in uh, New York, uh, there's no basis for an extradition case uh, for Ms. Monk. And uh, consequently, uh, in all probability, she may be free to go where she pleases uh, from dinner onwards tonight. 
Yeah, no, it appears that uh, once that process on our side of the border is complete, uh, the extradition case here could be thrown out against her, and I, I imagine she'd walk free pretty much immediately at that point. Well, there you go. I mean, that's why she's there signing papers. And when you have detention and related uh, uh, monetary instruments, land, property, cash uh, posted for bail, it does take a, a paper trail to get all of the details uh, taken care of and uh, the property and other assets uh, released uh, right. from custody in addition to herself. Uh, that's why uh, they're like sprinting to get the paperwork done. Uh, after that, uh, the extradition case collapses upon itself. Uh, the, the court would likely uh, uh, terminate proceedings uh, this afternoon. Yeah. That's the expectation. For the two Michaels, yes. it's another story. The difference here is that, uh, I don't know, the fastest way to explain it, it was President Trump that did use Ms. Meng as a trade pawn in his negotiations with China. President Biden has cleaned up that mess, took him a few months, and arm-twisting. The war was won when the, uh, the HSBC, the bank at the center of all this, voluntarily agreed to terminate its U.S. operations on American soil. That's the victory for the Justice Department in the United States. So what's left is Huawei and uh, Ms. Meng. You cut a check, you lose some pride, you're free to go. Uh, for our Michaels, uh, Beijing will sense the mist of goodwill over the Pacific and would not lose face in releasing uh, almost forthwith uh, our two detained Michaels. Don't forget... Unlike Canada, where uh, we separate judicial executive uh, levels uh, of government, including political, not so in China. The uh, political executive judiciary is all blended up into one, the Communist Party. So uh, they can uh, flip the switch and release our two Michaels forthwith, uh, and, and they don't have to explain what they do to anyone. Okay, well, there's a lot of people certainly hoping that will be the case, and it would be consistent with some precedents we saw earlier. I, I suspect you're familiar with the Kevin Garrett case. Yeah, uh, all of those. Um, uh, this one is special because it's a particular geopolitical interest and an inopportune time. There's economic pressures from COVID. There's military tension in the Taiwan Straits. Biden, President Biden would like to have a different uh, flavor of relationship with China. We're entering rapprochement. Canada will, will economically benefit when this case is done. Our agricultural sector will be pulled from the China don't buy list. And we're going to see other uh, benefits flowing once again in our trade mm -hmm. relations. Uh, for the Americans, we did them a favor by arresting her in the first place. I think the Prime Minister's office dropped the ball when they approved that politically, because I don't think they had any inkling of who this lady was. And now the Americans have returned the favor by doing what was required to terminate uh, this uh, well, case. Well, did Canada have any choice but to arrest her under our extradition treaty with the United States? You bet they did. Really? Absolutely. Okay. And I still ask publicly why, when it came to SNC-Lavalin, the cabinet privilege from Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, was uh, allowed to be revealed by her, but she was not allowed to talk about this case, which occurred prior to SNC-Lavalin. So that's another chapter for her next book, maybe. Uh, but um, lessons learned. So we move forward. Uh, the priority to Michaels, and, I, and yeah. I strongly urge the government of Canada to pay for their post-traumatic stress syndrome treatment.
because those families can't possibly afford what it's going to take. Uh, these guys were in the clink for Canada's interests, not under their control. We deserve to uh, bring them back and keep them healthy. Yeah, well, I certainly hope that they are they are back very soon. Speaking to Richard Curland, he's an immigration lawyer about the Meng Wanzhou case, and we expect Meng Wanzhou to be released here under this agreement with U.S. authorities. All eyes on the two Michaels now. Will they come home too? Um, when Michael Spavor was recently sentenced, I believe there was a line in there from the Chinese mm. court in the in the judgment or the sentence that there was an extradition process available there. Was was that sort of a clue or a hint that you know they'd be willing to send these guys back to Canada if the Mung case is resolved? Yeah, it's kind of like a hint by dropping a brick from a 10th floor building. Yeah. You bet. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah, he can be plane bound anytime soon. I certainly hope that's the case. I remember uh, interviewing Kevin Garrett, and I know you're familiar with that case. It was another Canadian who was detained in China. Again, it seemed like that hostage diplomacy retaliation for Canada's arrest of a Chinese national. And as soon as that case against that Chinese national was resolved, bang, like he was on a court and he was back in YVR very quickly. Um, could the same thing happen to the two Michaels? Like, could they be home uh, maybe next week? Uh, yeah, I don't want to raise hopes for those families, yeah, but yeah. absolutely, uh, that is my hope personally. Uh, next week uh, makes sense to me. And, uh, and in terms of timing, I, I, I see that they didn't try to do this during the election period for whatever reason. Yeah. And I'm glad it's done now. Uh, and I'm hoping for an immediate safe return uh, of our two Michaels. Immediate. Okay, uh, Richard, one minute left here. I mean, this has dragged on for almost three years, and now here we are. It's all being resolved with a few strokes of a pen, I guess, effectively. Mm. I mean, was it worth it? Like, what What was this? Why did this drag on so long? 30 seconds here. <laughs> Political intransigence. Um, uh, you cannot use uh, a human as a trade weapon in negotiations. That's fail one by President Trump uh, and the American administration at that time. Fail two, um, the prime minister wrongly informed Parliament, uh, it, it, rule of law, there is nothing that can be done when that's contradicted by Section 23 of the Extradition Act. The only political power uh, in, in, in a situation uh, like this allows right. the minister to terminate, and Canada didn't play that card okay. when it should. Richard, thanks for coming on. Pleasure.